This is episode 61 of the Solier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Zach Smith. Zach is a graduate of the MGH Institute of Health Professions and has been practicing as a speech-language pathologist throughout the greater Los Angeles area for the past three years. He has worked in a variety of healthcare settings, including acute care, subacute, skilled nursing, home health, and outpatient. He is also in the process of growing a mobile endoscopy company called SoCal Swallowing and Voice Diagnostics. Zach is highly passionate about ensuring accessibility of evidence-based speech therapy services, both assessment and treatment, to those in need, and is an advocate for seeing speech-language pathologists as a member of the medical continuity of care. Oh, I just love that bio, Zach. (laughs) Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everyone. I hope you are all doing well. I am just, I'm elated. I am so excited to be here and to share this good news with you all. But last week, we hit half a million downloads. Half a million downloads about swallowing, you guys. I'm I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to all of you that have really just embraced this endeavor. And I could not obviously do this without any of you. (laughs) And I also, I want to give such a special shout out to everyone that supports this podcast on Patreon and our sponsors, especially EndoHD, um, for keeping this thing going. I, I could not, I would not continue to do this without all of your guys' support. So all of the support you've given me does not go unnoticed. I pour, I pour all of my heart, soul, and all those financial resources back into continuing to keep this going. And I'm so grateful for all of you that reach out and say how much this has impacted your practice, not only your practice, but your patients. Um, that's why I started this whole thing. So I'm so glad that you guys have found value in what I say and what get, what the guests say, and also downloading the show notes and using those every week with your patients too. That's just everything I could have hoped for with this podcast. So I also want to give such a special shout out and thank you to all the guests that I've had on this show I know everyone's like, Tracy, your podcast is so great. My podcast is great because the guests make it great. (laughs) So I learned something insanely new from every episode as well. And so each and every one of you that have come on and been a guest on here and shared your knowledge and shared your wisdom and shared your passion with all of us, I'm super, super, super grateful. So um, I, I just want to say thank you so, so much to all of you that have joined in in this endeavor. So we're going to do a huge giveaway on Instagram. I'm still working out the final details, but uh, keep your ears peeled. Hopefully next week I'll tell you guys what we're going to do that. But just my way of saying thank you to all of you for supporting this and for getting to half a million downloads. Um, I actually had some publicity strategists reach out to me about it because apparently now we're in like the 1% of all podcasts get this type of these type of downloads. So that's nuts. So thank you to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And stay tuned to hear about that giveaway. Hopefully next episode, I'll have more details for you. So again, thank you. And I love this interview with Zach. He's one of my most favorite people in the world. He's just such such a kind guy. And hope you guys learn a lot from this episode. Hello, Zach. Hey, Teresa. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm wonderful for a Friday evening. Thank you for sitting down and chatting with me on a Friday night. No problem. It's a good way to end the week. It is. It is. It's a it's a high note of my week. So I am so excited to talk about this topic today, and I'm so glad that you volunteered to talk about it. And I guess before I get into it a little bit, why don't you tell people who you are? All right. Um, so I'm, a, I'm an SLP out in Los Angeles. Uh, I work primarily in the acute care setting. I do cover almost an entire hospital um, we actually just got a second SLP in there, um, but prior to that, I was on my own. So covering all of our units, our intensive and critical care, um, and even outpatient for both uh, treatments and modified barium swallows. Um, so that's kind of my by-day bio. And then at uh, at night, I'm operating or trying to grow a, a mobile fees program out here in Los Angeles as well. 
Yes, I love it. And that's how we came to know each other. So, um, you know, we all eat, breathe, drink, what's that saying? Fees. But then I, (laughs) you know, find out that you guys have all these other interests and realms that you've been diving into. So um, Zach is going to talk to us about kind of how to how to start a swallowing program in a facility that's really never had a speech pathologist before. And I know it sounds like such an extreme issue, but I've had so many messages from people like, I got my dream job in acute care, except they've never had an SLP before. <laughs> so I, I'm so glad that we're going to talk about this because there's so many patients that can benefit from our services that we just haven't been tapping into. So exactly. So thanks for speaking up, Zach. Oh, of course. I mean, it's something that you know, not only affected me personally, but it's something that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about myself. I think what we do is, is, uh, not only super beneficial, but, you know, should be there for, for the patients that need it. So if this gets the message out, that's great. Yeah. All right. So where should we start? Um, well maybe, you know, some reasons why facilities haven't, uh, haven't come across speech before. Yeah. You know, it can be, like you said, some people just the facility hasn't had a speech pathologist on staff. It can even be reasons like, you know, doctors just not knowing who to refer. Um, you know, for example, early on when I started before I was able to build up the case out of my hospital, it was basically just patients are labeled with aspiration pneumonia. They were the only ones I got. And aspiration pneumonia is, you know, it's prevalent on our case, but it's not the only diagnosis and it's not, you know, something that you're going to get a uh, quote unquote full caseload of. So, you know, that can be a reason. And then there's also the, uh, the big hurdle of, you know, doctors just not seeing the value in what we do. And, you know, that's, that's something that I still come across in that, you know, you're just a speech therapist. What can you do for my patients? And I don't take that as something to be defeated by. I take that as something, what can I do for your patients? Well, let's sit down and talk. And that's kind of where building, you know, your caseload, Nick, you really can start. Absolutely. I know even our, our my good friend Hillary Cooper said yesterday she went to a facility and was just shocked that the doctor had no clue what she was doing there or she was there to do a fees and the doctor just had no clue about the procedure or anything. So I think sometimes we get offended or we get upset because we think that they think poor, of, of, that they think badly about us, but a lot of times they just don't know what we can do. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that's that's part of our job is a speech pathologist, you know, you go to school and then you start working and you think it's just, you know, I've, I'm working in the hospital, I'll be seeing and assessing patients, but part of our job and something that ASHA even tells us we should be doing is educating others, not only how to help our patients, you know, for example, nurses and, and uh, CNAs and such, but educating about our general field. And that's, you know, that's where we really can pick up the slack and uh, get things going. Yeah. All right. So you got your dream job here, Zach, at your acute care facility, and where are you going to start? Uh, I think the best place to start is basically with everybody outside of your own department. Um, you know, your PTs and your OTs are your first line of defense, and they tend to have a better understanding of what you do as the speech pathologist than a lot of other people, especially in a facility where speech pathology may not have been before. You know, so they're the ones to talk to about. Have you seen any patients who present with, you know, cognitive issues or um, any nurses talking about this patient who's, uh, who's not eating or having a hard time eating, things like that, getting out and introducing yourself on units to your nursing staff, letting them know what you do. And then same for the doctors. The nice thing about our field is because our scope is so big and especially when it, with uh, regards to dysphagia, so many factors go into the issues that a lot of doctors actually come into contact with these patients. So um, a lot of times you might think neurology or ear, nose, and throat, but, you know, we can get in contact with cardiologists, with pulmonologists, um, nephrologists. There's really a gambit of people that we can kind of go in contact with and and, uh, let them know, I'm here now. uh, I'm part of staff. I'm the new speech pathologist. These are the services I offer. This is how I can benefit your patient specifically and being able to tailor it to whatever profession you're talking to at that time can really help you know, boost their interest in your services as well. All right. 
And do you do you specifically have like a method that you did, Zach? Was it like in services or just, hey, do you have two minutes to chat with me? Or, you know, kind of what what do you find in your facility to be the best way to have these conversations? I would say both. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the the acute environment is is very fast paced. Not a lot of people have a ton of time to sit down for a full meeting. But with uh, with nursing, I think the best thing for them is in-servicing. It doesn't need to be an hour, half hour thing. It can be a 15 minute kind of to the point what I can do for your patients. These are the signs to look out for, you know, put an order and when you need me. And then with doctors, because doctors tend to come and go, at least in a busy city like Los Angeles, they're not at just one hospital. They're at cover bring you know multiple hospitals they may be popping into skilled nursing facilities they may even have their own you know clinic that they're seeing outpatients at so it's harder to get them but you know for them it's just uh, you know approaching them being able to give them kind of facts and figures about uh, maybe their specific patient population and uh, and how you can fit in to help improve the life and function of that patient so awesome. it's, it's kind of it's kind of a mixed bag of whatever you can get and however you can track these people down I love it I love the top-down and bottom-up approach. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Um, so yeah, why don't you talk about kind of what, what are some of the obvious cases that you educated them about? Well, so, you know, some of the obvious cases up front, um, you know, like I was saying earlier, is a good place to start is kind of your aspiration pneumonia patients and really kind of delving into their their case history, their, their presenting medical um, issues to really find out what is causing this this problem. You know, for example, we at the hospital that I'm at, we get a fair amount of patients with uh, COPD and COPD exacerbations. There's a whole lot of respiratory discoordination that's going on with that diagnosis, and those kind of things are things that can lead to aspirations, which ultimately could lead to a pneumonia. You know, those are kind of things to look at. So, really, like I said, really looking in their in their medical history is a good place to start and a good, and a good place to start parsing things around, um, you know, being unafraid to really do the outside research. Um, you know, for example, when I started, we almost, we do, we do get stroke, uh, stroke patients at my hospital, but we're not a stroke certified center. So it's not as common. Okay. But depending on what figures you're looking at, you're looking at a range of, you know, 60 to 70 plus percent of patients with, they may not present with an obvious impairment in speech or swallowing, but they still have some degree of impairment, um, you know, something that may be our referral for a modified or for our fees. So being able to take those kind of figures to people um, is something as well. So you have a stroke patient comes in, you can talk to the doctor about a possible evaluation because of the high percentage of patients with their particular diagnosis that meet criteria for needing speech services. Do you guys have like, um, I know some facilities have like, a, if a patient comes in with a stroke, they immediately get an automatic referral to speech. Do you guys have something like that or? Not currently at my hospital. That's something that I'm working on. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I've been there uh, just uh, actually just a year, year now. Um, so we've come a long way and there's still a long way to go, you know, but having, um, having things like that to, to be able to say, you know, for the strokes that like we're talking about, you know, this percentage, this should be an automatic referral. Um, right now, it's more so the obvious cases of, of uh, impairment with strokes. So if they're coming in with slurred speech or uh, facial paralysis of some sort, those are the ones that are getting referred. But slowly working our way to, you know, to getting it. So right now, we have a lot more. Uh, the automatics tend to be the uh, right lower lobe pneumonias. Those are our more automatic. They're not 100%, but yeah. you know, things like that to look out for. Gotcha. All right. What other, um, yeah. What, what other conditions are, are you advocating for? Um, I advocate for basically anything that I know of, or I can find a relation to dysphagia. Um, you know, for example, if a patient goes uh, in for cardiothoracic surgery, that's a huge risk of, of uh, damaging the laryngeal nerves. And right there, that's something that can lead to a dysphagia, can lead to other issues that speech could need to be consulted for. And there's actually a fairly high number of people with that disorder, or excuse me, with um, with that type of surgical procedure who end up having something that would end up on the speech caseload. You know, patients who go in for cervical spine surgeries like ACDFs, anterior, uh, anterior cervical fusions, they tend to have 
pretty high issue or high percentage of issues that actually last a little bit longer because of the area that they're impacted. Um, if you have patients on ventilators, if you have anybody who comes in with a tracheostomy, again, those, you know, those are kind of things you learn about, I would say in school or in continuing ed, but they're an easy population, especially when you haven't had a speech pathologist before to educate the, the staff that, you know, this patient may be on a ventilator, but given the right tools and given the right assessment, they can potentially swallow, they can potentially be speaking with, you know, with this passive mirror, we should be getting them modified barium swallows, get them fees if they're not able to be transported, things like that. I mean, other ones, kidney disease is a big one, especially with regards to cognitive function. And we know how important cognitive function is to safety when you're eating. You know, there's, there's studies out there that show that if you think of things in terms of the, the spectrum of kidney disease and how you go from, you know, kind of an acute kidney injury on up through chronic kidney disease to end-stage renal disease, the more you're progressing with that kidney disease, the more cognitive issues you have. So being able to bring figures like that in and say, you know, you have this amount of patients in your hospital that have end-stage kidney disease, they may not have an obvious swallowing, you know, physiological deficit, but we had one patient I walked in one time, um, I had an order for the nurses who told me they were swallowing just fine, walked in to see him and he was using a straw as a spoon. Things like that. That's going to impact yeah. intake, and those are those are patients that we can be, you know, looking for. Patients with heart failure or heart attacks. You know, if you think about what the heart does for the body in terms of pumping up oxygenated blood everywhere, if you're having issues with that, you may not be getting adequate oxygenation to your brain. There's something right there, and those patients tend to have kind of a total body decline in condition, especially early on, and may not be able to swallow safely due to muscular issues. And then always, especially in acute patients who have been extubated, you know, a, a big thing that I came across early on with uh, my extubation patients is they've just been extubated. We need to wait. Uh, I think at that point it was a week. You know, we have to wait oh a week God. before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, Dr. Broski's thing is head against the wall somewhere. <laughs> um, if he hears this, yeah, I'm sure he will be. <laughs> um, you know, but that's that's old thinking that, still impacts facilities that, you know, for, for certain departments can be super cutting edge and they're still using thinking from years ago that we need to give time for this, uh, this extubation patient to have any swelling or any intubation trauma to kind of subside before we even think about bringing in the speech pathologist. And that's not true. You know, now we're finding the earlier you're in there, the better outcomes you're going to be getting for these patients. So that's something to use as an advocation point. I mean, you can kind of see the list of, of patients and different diagnoses and profiles. It, it's really kind of endless when it comes yeah. to our scope. I mean, and that's just an, uh, an attribute of having as wide of a scope of practice as we do. But even within the realm of dysphagia, dysphagia can come from so many different diagnoses, can be impacted by so many different diagnoses. And knowing those diagnoses is really a good place to start building your case and start looking for these patients. Absolutely. Zach, this is just music to my ears, this this whole little blurb you just did. Um, and so anybody that's listening, I'm going to attach, um, Zach created a wonderful outline for me, um, and I'll attach this to the show notes. But what is in here is all these conditions that he just talked about, he has references for. So if you have a doctor that doesn't believe you that, you know, kidney disease can be related to dysphagia. He's got a reference in here for you. So I will be sure to post these in the show notes and everybody thanks Zach for doing the dirty work for you. So. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. I mean, if, if it's going to help, you know, I'm yeah. happy to do it. Awesome. All right. So what about knowing who not to refer? That's another big issue too. Um, Cause you don't want to be like the boy who cried wolf, right? Exactly. You know, you don't want to be taking every patient just, you know, for the sake of having a caseload, um, because what that does is it kind of discredits you as the speech pathologist. You know, you're not going to refer someone to a, a doctor inappropriately, and you're not going to have a patient who's got a heart problem and send them down to the GI lab. That's just not going to be done. So why would you send a patient who's not appropriate for speech to the speech pathologist? You know, and granted, there's a lot of gray, like, you know, there are GI symptoms and esophageal issues that can impact our practice. But if there's someone who, you know, you, you're looking through their chart and they've got a history of esophageal stricture and that's really all it is. And there's nothing that we're going to be able to do up front for those patients, except refer them to the right person. So, you know, advocating for 
yes, these are the patients who need to be seen, but also advocating for these patients aren't ready to be seen by me yet because of X, Y, and Z. That's another big thing. And I've actually found that doctors respond really well to that because it shows you know what you're doing. You know yeah. that you know these patients need something that you can't offer. Yeah. And that tends to be a huge credit to you as the speech pathologist. So yeah, I actually had an, that exact scenario happen this weekend or this past week. I had a doctor, um, she texts me herself and she said, we have this patient with the stricture. I want you to come and look at him. And I said, well, is that really all that's going on? Because I'm going to probably just refer to GI anyways. Is there mm-hmm. anything really alarming right now? And she's like, no, no, not not at all. No history of pneumonia. You know, we're not suspecting aspiration or anything. So that's what I said. You know, well, I would just recommend referring right on to a GI. And mm-hmm. she's just said, you know, thank you so much for being honest with me about that and not just, you know, coming in and taking the referral, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, and and with that one, that's a great response. You know, other other patients who I tend to, or at least I used to tend to get a lot more were, we just want to check. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the absence of anything that you can possibly think of having yeah. to do with them having a dysphagia. So we, we would have patients coming in for, uh, you know, like leg swelling or, or, you know, localized edema to the feet. And yeah. we just want to check that they can swallow. You know, the, the response you may want to throw out is, well, what the, the feet have to do with dysphagia? But, you know, being able to tell them that there's nothing inherent about that type of localized issue that leads to issues, you know, so far up in the body compared to where their issues are at. Again, it's, it's a credit to you and being able to say they don't need me. Right. Cause not every patient that comes through your door is going to, right. And it's up to us to know that that's part of our job is to know who to and who not to refer both ethically and, and professionally. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Nailed it there, Zach. All right. So, how are we going to advocate to these people? I kind of teased it out of you a little bit before, but let's dive into it. Of course. I mean, um, I think the biggest form of advocation is is kind of like what we've been talking about with using these facts and figures. And you know, if, uh, if you're out there listening and you want to use the references that I've started compiling, um, I promise it is not a complete list, but I mean, it's, it's a start. Yeah. Things like that. Doctors tend to respond well to research. They they may argue with you all day, but if you show them, you know, printed facts and figures, they can't argue with that. Um, and they don't, they tend not to, they tend to accept that. So that's kind of one place to start advocating is, uh, is with research. You know, it's something that we should be doing in our, in our daily practices, not only utilizing the research in our own practice, but being able to parse out good, appropriate, you know, well done and well-designed research from kind of the hocus pocus type research that, uh, that is still out there and still being used and then using it in your, you know, your one-on-one meetings with your doctors, using it, uh, while in servicing, whether it's a team of doctors or the, the doctor and their, their office staff, nurses, your, your own rehab unit. You know, I'm lucky. I have a good, uh, good rehab team that I work with at the hospital, but I've had rehab teams that, you know, like I said earlier, PTs and OTs tend to have a better idea, but sometimes they, they don't, they, you know, to yeah. you, to them, you're just, you know, I mean, I've heard everything, you're swallow man or swallow woman yeah. or, um, you know, the cracker person or you yeah. know, applesauce king. It's, it's, that's kind of, you know, that nice list. So, um, you know, being able to provide good, solid resources to them is, is, a, is a really big place to advocate. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know, I, a lot of times I try to preface it with just like your field has grown extensively, just like your field constantly has new research. So, so does ours, Mm -hmm. you know, so just because maybe you've had experience with SLPs in the past that have done things this way, we now know so much more. And here's the research as to why I am advocating for these, you know, we know a lot more. And I don't think there's anything wrong with starting a conversation like that. Oh, not at all. I mean, and people tend to be a lot more responsive when you do it that way too. It doesn't have to be talking at someone. Yeah. Um, I mean, and you know, when I did, when I do my in-services, I'm not talking at, at my nurses or at my rehab team. It's more, this is what I'm here to offer. You know, what, what questions do you guys have? What can I answer? You know, do you have any burning questions about speech now that, you know, you have someone here who's going to be a consistent presence, hopefully answer those questions 
with, you know, with good solid knowledge and good solid information. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. it. Other things to do too, are, um, you know, if, if you have events at your, at your hospital, so we tend to have, um, uh, vendors coming in all, you know, things like that. Um, you can have information set up there for, um, for better hearing and speech month this past May. You know, I had two students with me at that time and we spent time kind of coming up with facts related to our, our scope of practice. And we knew that all of the nurses on the unit are always carrying around highlighters. So we attached facts about, you know, how we can help their patients to these highlighters, gave them candy and handed them out. That's they great. actually read it. And for yeah. about a month afterwards, they were coming up to me and, you know, oh, hey, does this patient, you know, match um, someone who should be referred to you? You know, some of them were, you know, just realizing that we were there and I'd get, oh, well, my kid is five and, and they speak like this is that, you know, should I bring them to speech therapy? Things like that. So, you know, it may not seem like, you know, right up front, but there is a lasting impact, especially if you can make it a way that's more approachable and uh, can be tied into something fun and useful for them versus just, you know, kind of going around and, hey, I'm here, I do dysphagia. Right, right. What is that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I love it, Zach. I love it. All right. So what about using resources from ASHA? Um, That can be a huge huge plus, uh, plus, excuse me. Um, you know, as you all know, Ash is really there to be kind of our highest point of advocacy for, for our field. So they have done so much advanced work for you that, you know, you don't have to, to reinvent the wheel or, or try and, you know, stress yourself out and finding these things. It's easy as just going to Ash's practice portal. Um, they have a ton of resources and references printables and all kinds of things that you can use that kind of fit the trend that, you know, that we've been talking about, Teresa, that it's, it's got the research behind it. It's, it's done in an approachable way. So it's, you know, able to be accessible to people that are not speech pathologists. So, I mean, it's just going to make your life easier if you're using that type of resource to improve the, the quality of speech character hospital. All right. I love it. I know Ash has done a lot of really great things with the, that practice portal and the updated mm-hmm. practice patterns and Kudos, Asha. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like I go and <laughs> even if it's, you know, once every other week, I feel like there's something new, yeah, which yeah. is awesome. So, yeah. yeah, keep up. Just, you know, don't go the one time. Keep going because I know they're really price. messing up all my blog links that I keep having because <laughs> they're all outdated now. But anyways, yeah, it's it's good. It's a good problem. Mm-hmm, definitely. All right. And what about speech pathology policies in your hospital? That's something that you can and should take a look at when you start. Um, you know, so when, for instance, when I started in my hospital, the policies basically said the speech pathologist is there to cover bedside swallow evaluations and refer for modifieds if need be. And that was kind of the bulk of it. The rest of it was, it, it just kind of felt like it was more snippets taken from maybe the dietitian policies, of the hospital, or I mean, we had nothing about, you know, any kind of respiratory anything. So it was just kind of a piecemeal hodgepodge of hospital policies that had the title speech pathologist on it. And it was all old information or just, you know, information that someone not in the field could have developed. And you're the expert in that you should be the one who's advocating for those changes at the policy level, because when you get that and you can get these policies passed, that's another place where real change can happen. Policies are something that cannot be argued very easily, yeah. I should say, in a hospital. So, <laughs> um, you know, so being able to take the time, I mean, it may require some more work on your end, but uh, but it's not going to be an ongoing thing. Once you get them done and, and you know, processed and approved by administration, they're there and they're there for you to, you know, to be able to use. Yeah. Um, so they can help you frame the, the referral process. So like we were talking about, you know, if you are able to get it into your policies that all new stroke patients are needing to be referred by speech because they have a high incidence of dysphagia, even if they don't look like it, or, you know, after being cleared by pulmonology and respiratory, your ventilator patients should be sent to speech for trials of, you know, passing ear valves or modifieds or whatever, you know, kind of whatever you can get in collaboration with the rest of the medical team. Um, you know, that's, that's framing your practice within your hospital right there and can help with growth and not only of your caseload, but also of your presence in the hospital and knowledge of speech in the hospital. 
Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's kind of, you know, with some of our friends that have started fees programs in the hospital, that's one of the biggest hurdles because it's not in their policies that an mm-hmm. SLP can do this. So a lot of them exactly. have just had to start with getting at, getting it approved at the policy level that, yes, this is a procedure that's within our scope of practice per ASHA guidelines. And once they can get the policy established, then the hospitals are more apt to letting them purchase the equipment and do the do the procedure. Exactly. All right. Um, what, what did you have in here, Zach, about continuing education courses that you're hosting them at your hospital too? So that's actually something if if you're a, if you're an approved provider, you go through the process of becoming an approved provider, you can you can host them. But that can tend to be a lot of work. Yeah. You know, to go through that process and, and yes. it may not be something that, you know, you're interested in, but a lot of companies are the way to go with that. So for instance, um, you know, we've been talking about um, speaking valve. Passy Mirror is a company who will come out and host continuing ed. And the nice thing is they tend to have uh, courses that are geared toward respiratory therapy, nursing, and speech pathology all in that one course because all disciplines need to keep up on their education. So by being able to bring in something that's more interdisciplinary like that, you're going to get a lot more return on that versus just you know, a speaking valve that's only, only the course is only good for speech pathologists. No one else is going to show up to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so knowing kind of what, uh, where to reach out and, and to look for these companies that, that do have that kind of it's their interdisciplinary hub around there, their continuing ed courses, because those courses tend to be, how does nursing work for this? How does respiratory, how does PTOT, how does speech? And at that course, even if you're not the one who's leading it, other people that you work with are learning, oh, speech does have a role in these types of patients. And that's the ultimate goal of continuing it anyway, is to increase your knowledge in whatever area you've decided to take your course in. So knowing there are people who will come to your hospital to do these kind of things and that you can reach out and set them up. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Safe. I yeah. yeah, I've I've done a few talks this year. I did one for um just a local corporation that I that I do fees for and they said that every six months, like every month, PT and OT get to do a continuing ed course, but every six months, speech gets to do one. You know, so, <laughs> so vitally, they advocated for no, like we want a monthly one being offered too. So I got to come and help them with that. Yeah. And oh, good equal treatment between your Yes. Yes. And there was another hospital that I did a talk at too, and they hadn't had a speech CEU or swallowing, I should say, in about three years. So, yeah, I mean, if you're even just that person that's picking that scab about, hey, hi, we exist here, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. It may seem like you're being annoying, but ultimately it'll pay off on the end. So absolutely. And I and like you said, I don't think a lot of people realize how closely we do work with respiratory therapy and, mm-hmm. you know, dietitians. And, and our role is really a lot more collaborative than I think people think. We're not just the, you know, teaching people how to wag their tongues back and forth. So. <laughs> Exactly. You know, we're not the isolated little bubble floating around the hospital, just uh, giving applesauce and graham crackers. Yes. Yes. All right. So what's next here, Zach? Let's talk about instrumentals. Yes. You know, that's, that's another area. um, I would say both in terms of the referral process and then also how they operate that you can be advocating for. So most and I'm going to kind of clarify, I know it's not all, but most hospitals at least have the the capability to do either modified barium swallows or fees. If you're lucky, you know, count your blessings, count your stars, whatever you want to do, you'll have both. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but just because you have the equipment in the hospital at your disposal does not mean it's going to be a guaranteed, even though, you know, we all know that it should be if it's coming from, you know, your recommendation based on observations at bedside. And they don't have any medical issues that would prevent them from participating. But again, that's where you can, you know, you can advocate and you can show, like we were talking about ASHA's, you know, scope that they've put out on, on uh, in terms of our scope of practice. We can do modified barium swallows. We are the preferred professional for that. We are able to do fees. And most of the time, we're the ones who end up doing that as well. Um, you know, sure, for fees, ENTs have scopes and a lot of people tend to take the, well, we'll just give them to the ENT and let them do the scoping, but ENTs don't have the training in terms of swallow physiology and impairment that we do. So yeah. being advocate, being able to advocate you know, those kind of points 
in, in either starting a program or getting increased utilization on it is another thing. And then, like I said, being able to educate and, and develop how to do these, these uh, procedures uh, is another thing. So for instance, I'm sure that a lot of people who are, who are listening to this topic and who are interested in this may have come across this too, where when I started in my hospital, the very first sign of aspiration, our radiologists would get up and leave the room without saying anything. And you can't do the test, at least in, in, in our hospital, I'm sure a lot of other hospitals out there, you can't continue to do your modified if the radiologist isn't present. So, and, and they know that, they kind of call the test. But I remember at one point, I actually saw him getting up to leave my radiologist and I walked out, I grabbed him by the scrubs and I brought him back in to educate him as to compensatory strategies and postures and things that we need to try. And sure enough, I, I want to say it was a chin tuck. It was something, you know, everybody seems to know chin tuck, but it's, you know, that's a, that can be a good thing. And I told him, let's run it. Let's try this position because of X, Y, and Z. And sure enough, the patient did not aspirate. It worked. And since then I have never had an issue with that particular radiologist. So you know, well done, letting, Zach. Well done. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, that's what that's what people should be doing. Is um, you know, our our modifies and our fees are not just for penetration or aspiration. They're for you know, looking at the physiology, developing these plans of care. Uh, you know, trialing different compensatory strategies, trialing the postures because you don't you don't know at bedside. Yeah. You know, we just had a guy yesterday that I'm working with who. At bedside, he looked pretty good. And then we put him under fluoro and he's aspirating because of a delayed swallow initiation. But no, you know, no history of, uh, of aspiration, no pneumonia, you know, not the quote unquote typical presentation of the patient. And those are the kinds of people that you can be advocating for advanced, you know, uh, advanced testing and you know, really utilizing these, these uh, modifieds and fees to the full extent Again, that just ups your credibility within the eyes of a lot of people in the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, tell me about what was the environment like when you first started at this hospital? You you did have capability to do MBS, you said, but the radiologist would just leave if they saw aspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, from uh, from talking with um, with my techs um, and other staff around the hospital, it's it was basically maybe one or two modified bearing swallows a week. Prior to prior to my coming there, the caseload again was really low. I think we may have gotten three referrals a week tops. But even even from what I've been told, even even the speech pathologist, if the patient aspirated, they would just say, "Oh, they're aspirating. They're not safe." NPO possible G two placement. Yep. You know, I mean, and those are big hurdles for for anybody to go against. And you know, if if you're out there and you're having those issues, you know, I feel your pain. I really do. Yeah. But it's talking to people like like, you know, you were mentioning that our field has changed a lot and, you know, yeah, previously everybody knows the chin tuck and the chin tuck is the answer to all things dysphagia, but that's not the case, you know, so taking that environment of, you know, one modified a week to sometimes I do five a day now, you know, it it can be, it can be a process, but the process really is kind of advocating at the level of, the people who who are involved in that. So, you know, talking with your radiologists about, you know, our, per, our preferred practice for frame rates, you know, that's still a hurdle that I'm, I'm facing is that ASHA has put out that 30 frames per second is usually what we need for appropriate assessment and radiologists kind of come from that while well, you're using a ton of, of radiation and that's not safe for the patient. But, you know, kind of having those conversations back and forth, that's a place to start changing things for your instrumentals. I'm unfortunate at my hospital that we don't have fees. So I have yet to have that battle. I'm currently advocating for policy changes to show people we can, because we just hired our first, uh, otolaryngologist. So now for California, at least we can have that on the hospital. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. One day at a time, Zach. I love it. Exactly. You know, that's yeah. the, that's the mind frame you have to have. It's not going to be overnight change. Um, you know, and, and I think if you're going to walk out of listening to this with one piece of advice from me on that is if you go into this thinking, you know, I have all these resources now, I have all this knowledge, I can, you know, do this. And then you you think it's going to be an overnight change, you are going to be disappointed. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't mean that to sound defeatist because it's not, but it's a, it's a process. Think about how many professionals are in a hospital, how many of those professionals you come into contact with, um, how nurses change shift daily, 
you know, you see the same nurse maybe once or twice a week. The doctors, like I said, are in and out. It's, it's a process. And, you know, here I am a year in and yes, things have gone almost a complete 180 from where they're at, but there's still so much more to go to. Absolutely. I think that's kind of the theme with everybody I talk to. So, you know, some people say, oh, it took two years to get here. Oh, it took five years to get here. You know, this is not going to happen in a day. So Mm -hmm. thank you for stressing that. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. (laughs) All right. Well, talk to me a little bit about community. That's another place to, to draw a lot of inspiration from. And, you know, this may be harder for some than others, you know. So for me, I'm lucky being in Los Angeles that it's a huge metropolitan city. We have, you know, at least in the area that I live and work, there's 10 major hospitals and chains that I, I have access to, you know, so, so being able to reach out to other speech pathologists, even if it's just to, you know, let them know I'm working at this hospital, I'm new, we're developing policies, or I'm interested in how you do this. Um, most speech pathologists tend to respond very positively to those kind of things and are more than willing to help. You know, so for instance, I at, at the last uh, the last ASHA convention um, out here in Los Angeles, I met two speech pathologists from the Rancho Los Amigos Hospital and got to talking with them about their policies regarding dysphagia and brain injury, and was able to use that kind of information in informing my own policy development. Awesome. You know, so that's one thing. If you do live in a city, if you don't, that's okay. We have Facebook, we have yeah. Instagram. <laughs> you know, you have Google. We have. Oh, the ASHA community page. That's another place to reach out to people. I think everybody who is an ASHA member has a has a, a community page. Even if you don't know you have it, it's there. And you can yeah. message people and then talk. So, you know, it's not, you know, you may be alone in your immediate environment or your immediate community, but you're not alone in the grand scheme of things. You're not, um, you're not alone, period. So, yes. you know, I know that you've, Teresa, started a, a few groups on Facebook, the the amount of medical groups that I'm in on Facebook is too many to count. Um, yes. You know, people daily, it's, you know, I have a patient who is this old, presents with this, this, and this, these are the complicating factors, never had a patient like this, or, you know, I, I'm new to this, please help. And it's, it's amazing and overwhelming to see how many people respond so positively to that. So knowing that they're out there and not being afraid to just kind of take that leap of faith and post about your patients that's totally something worth doing. Yeah. 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 Um, do you get a lot, do you do a lot of the outpatient MBSs for your hospital? I do a hundred percent of them. Yes. All right. <laughs> so how's your relationship with your fellow SNF skilled nursing SLPs? Do you um, know them? I know a couple of them. Yeah. Um, most of the, actually most for me, most of the, the outpatient, um, modifieds that I get tend to be from doctors themselves. Okay. Uh, you know, which is another thing. And that's something that I have on my kind of list of things to do is to reach out to to some of these skilled nursing facilities in my immediate area from that hospital yeah. and then let them know if you have an issue, I'm here. I have, you know, medical release forms, whatever you need, you know, we can talk, we have that line of communication. So um, I have three in my area right now that, that know who I am and know what I do at the hospital. Uh, and we've talked uh, when they've sent patients, but a lot of it, again, kind of goes back to doctors. So they tend to refer sometimes a little bit late. We had one guy who's had dysphagia for about three years and never they never did anything about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, better late yeah. than never. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, keeping that, that relationship open with the doctors because that's another thing that, again, if you're trying to build an outpatient department at your hospital too, I know we're talking about acute, but, you know, if you're like me, you're going to be doing acute and outpatient. And that's another thing to, you know, build your case, but also build relationships with ultimately is the relationship is much more important in the long run, especially when you're, when it's your patients we're talking about your caseload kind of waxes and wanes in, in the medical world. We all know about, you know, when it rains, it pours and when it's dry, it's, it's, you know, death Valley, but yeah, you know, those relationships are important because when those doctors do have patients, they're going to come to you as the swallow expert, as the dysphagia expert. Yeah. I love that you just said that, Zach, because I think so many times we, I, I don't know what people think. I don't know what speech pathologists think sometimes. It's almost like they just think that the universe is going to connect them with other SLPs in their area and they don't, you know, or doctors and they aren't willing to mm-hmm. make the first step, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I had an experience with an ENT recently that I referred a patient to 
and he called me and he said, I've been wondering when you were going to introduce yourself to me. I've heard all about you. I've heard you're in the area doing these these tests, and I've been waiting for you to come in and introduce yourself. And I was like, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to, to hear things like that, you're like, crap, you know, I, I should make the initiative to go out and, you know, tell people, hi, I'm here. I exist. I'm the one doing the studies. I'm the one seeing your patients. Let me know if you have any questions. And, you know, mm-hmm. from then on, it opened up a huge, like you said, it's been an incredible relationship ever since. And Conversely, I just had a a laryngologist reach out to me and say, you know, I'm new in the area, but I'm the laryngologist in this in this um, practice now. Let me know if you have any questions. And yes, yes. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah. So I, you know, I I want people to don't be afraid to reach out to your colleagues and let them know you exist and you breathe and you're the one doing the work. So exactly. You know, I mean, I joke with uh, with a lot of people in my area that there is no swallow doctor, but we tend to, I'm sure there are a ton of people out there who've been called the swallowologist. Yes. Yes. That, you know, that's a good and appropriate title. We are as close to, you know, a quote unquote doctor for, for dysphagia as you're going to get. Of course, there's always that interdisciplinary aspect of it, but you are the one who's got the advanced training in dysphagia. So being able to reach out to these people and like you said, say, Hey, I'm here. Let's talk. It goes a long way. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I love that, Zach. Do you have any any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I guess I would say, you know, like I like I had uh, had said before, be confident in yourself. You know, yes, you're you know, you may be independent in your hospital, but they hired you for a reason. They brought you in for a reason. And if you're looking to to build knowledge and to build caseload, you are the perfect person to start that process. So don't be afraid to do it. Don't be afraid to reach out. Again, you may be the only one in the hospital, but you're not the only one in the world. There are people out there who are totally willing and ready to help. It's just, you know, how the process that you take to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, so Zach, when you first started there, how many patients did you have in your caseload? I remember because I I had, uh, I had worked with that hospital per diem for about five months before I was brought in full time. And I made the switch from skilled nursing. I was really excited to do it because I wanted the fast paced environment. And I remember my first week, the entire week I saw five patients. Oh gosh. Yep. All right. It's a lot of bonbons. You were sitting around eating all week then. It's exactly, (laughs) you know, you've got productivity, so you can't sit around all day. So it'd be, you know, at work, I tend to go to work really early. I'm there at seven in the morning and, uh, at home before breakfast time is over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. oh, and I mean, that's, that's actually, I, I'm kind of going out of order, but that's something too, is I've run into a lot of, oh, you do treatments. Most people think you're eval and either discharge or eval and come back right before the patient discharges to, you know, check the box that they can swallow and they can be sent home or sent to the sniff on whatever diet you say they can't. Yep. So being able to advocate that, no, I'm coming back because there are things that we saw on that modified bearing swallow that we can work on, or there's a lot of, you know, patient or spouse or family education that needs to be done. That's another, I still, I mean, I still, for nurses that, uh, that I've worked with for a year now, they're still realizing that I'm doing treatments when I come back and, you know, check on my patients. I'm not checking on them. It's I'm doing these follow-up treatments because of whatever, you know, insert your reason here. Yeah. So Yeah. I love it. I, I know. I think I, I just responded to someone that kind of was asking like for guidelines of, you know, when should you, when should you recommend an instrumental and when should you not? And, you know, and I said, if that's really all that our job consisted of, then, you know, it would, we could just train monkeys to do that. You know, there's so many other factors that go in and say, you know, yes, this person needs a swallow study and yes, they're aspirating and that's it. You know, no, we, there's monkeys that could do that, but we're not monkeys. No, and we don't want to be replaced by computers. That's the big thing. So yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I I use, I thought monkeys sounded more fun, but yeah, technology Uh, is too. Monkeys are fine. I I just had, I just had a nurse the other day tell me that nursing is the only profession that will never be replaced by a computer. Mm-hmm. speech too. Don't forget us. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's yeah. I think they all could be argued to, at some point. Oh so. yeah. Very true. 
but um you know it, it's really your clinical judgment and you should be doing that in in all aspects you're the one who comes with that particular set of clinical judgments yeah you know in terms of not only your own scope of practice but like we talked about earlier referrals and who to refer to and and why you should be referring and why yep. they shouldn't be referring all that kind of bundles up into into your package as a speech pathologist don't be afraid to use it yep all right oh i love this so much zach thank you so so much no problem it's been my oh pleasure. well and then and then i wanted to ask you so how well, how big is your caseload now <laughs> um so actually i before we started recording i finished you know my week we are up to uh currently 23 patients on caseload all right acutely and then i have three outpatients as well all right so it's too many for me in a day so that's why now i'm I'm happy we have another speech pathologist she actually is uh is my cf we were able to hire her so oh, awesome mm-hmm. so you know i started with five a week and now i have a cf under me at the hospital because i have started too many for from me the bottom now you're here that's right all right i love it zach <laughs> this is so great I hope this gives so many people that are, you know, like I said, I get messages all the time that I got my dream job and now I, but there's no patience for me to see. I don't know what to do. So, you know, I, I think the DORs are used to saying, well, you better go drum up some business, you know, and it's, it's oh, yeah, you don't really like to hear it that way. But on the other hand, no, how about you just go advocate for your services? So exactly. You know, don't, don't be listening. I know it's more of a skilled nursing thing, but don't be just evaluating all your part B's. There's yeah. a lot, more, <laughs> there's a lot more that you can be doing. Yeah. And it really, it really boils down to your advocacy for yourself and for the patients who are in your hospital who need you. Yeah. You may not have gotten the referral, but I guarantee you there are patients right there right now. And it's up to you to, to really not drum up business, but drum up yourself in your services that can help the patients. Yep. Awesome. All right. I love it. Thank you so, so much, Zach. My pleasure. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.